Romans chapter 2, going to consider this morning verses 6 through 8 of Romans 2. In order to get the context of this, I'm going to read a broader section, starting in verse 5. In our exposition of Romans, we looked last time at the foundation of Judgment Day, and this morning I want to begin to look at the essential features, the distinguishing features of Judgment Day. Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 5. And according to your hardness and impenitent heart, you are accumulating for yourself wrath in a day of wrath and revelation of God's righteous judgment, who will give back or render to everyone according to his works. On the one hand, to those who by perseverance and good work seek glory, honor, and immortality, everlasting life. On the other hand, those who from selfishness are both disobeying the truth and being persuaded by injustice will be wrath and anger, affliction and distress on every soul of man that does evil, of a Jew first and also of a Greek but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to a Jew first and also to a Greek. For with God is no favoritism. For as many as have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And as many who have sinned within the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are right with God, Rather, the doers of the law will be justified. For, whenever Gentiles that don't have the law do by nature the things of the law, these, although they don't have the law, are the law for themselves, who display the law's work written in their hearts their conscience giving corroborating testimony and their thoughts among one another, either bringing charges or offering self-defense. On a day when God judges men's secrets according to my gospel through Jesus Christ. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's blessing on the ministry of his holy word. Father, once again, as we bow in your presence, we acknowledge that we depend completely and totally upon you. We have no power in ourselves, and we have no safety net. And if you don't come by the Holy Spirit and bless us today, we are of all human beings the most miserable. But we pray that you would. We plead that you would open up the windows of heaven, draw near to us now. Shine 
gospel light on your word. You know every person sitting in this room this morning. You know what each of us needs to hear. Oh God, have mercy. Draw near by the Holy Spirit. Let your word come with searching light and saving power. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now this text points us to a reality. The reality is that every one of us is one day going to experience ultimate justice. There is some justice in this life, but sad to say, oftentimes there is very little justice. God has ordained the state as a means of punishing evildoers and rewarding those that do well. Sometimes it does that. And sometimes it refuses to do that. Sometimes people get away with gross, evil, and horrible wrongs that they do to others. And the society that should punish them just lets them go. And that really bothers people, doesn't it? With regard to a lack of justice, sometimes there's more, sometimes there's less, sometimes in some places there's more justice than others. But here's the thing. It may be that in terms of the criminal justice system, people get away with things in this world. But the day is coming. The day is coming when God Almighty himself is going to dispense ultimate justice. And nobody is going to be able to live in sin, wickedness, wrong, and get away with it. And on that day, the righteous will be recognized, commended, and rewarded. The Apostle Paul describes three essential features of this great day of judgment. And he begins by speaking about the basic principle of justice. The ultimate justice that takes place and he says that principle is described with these words in verse 6. God will give back. He will render to everyone according to his works. You have judgment by works. Now, at the very start, that might sound like a problem. How can you have salvation by grace and judgment by works? Isn't that a contradiction? The answer is no. It's not a contradiction. There's no contradiction whatsoever between salvation by grace and judgment by works. And why is that? And here's the reason. Uh, I could explain it to you a number of ways, but 
I could just say this. The way God has planned and arranged his wonderful work of salvation, he has intimately connected, and what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. He has intimately connected two things. More than two, but at least these two things. Sanctification and justification. He has intimately connected getting right with God by means of faith and the work of the Holy Spirit transforming a person's soul and lifestyle. Those two things can never be ripped apart. Everyone that God justifies, God also sanctifies. To everyone that God gives the free gift of the righteousness of Christ by means of faith alone, because of grace alone. He also gives a new heart. He morally renews the heart, and he gives and imparts to them the gift of the Spirit of Christ. For because if any man has not the Spirit of Christ, he has none of his. He puts the Holy Spirit within every genuine believer And he says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. When when he regenerates a soul and and makes, makes that person a repentant, believing person, he gives that person that conversion, the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit dwelling in a person causes him to live a holy life. So there's no contradiction. Because everyone that he justifies on the ground of Christ alone, by grace alone, by means of faith alone, he also sanctifies, gives them a new heart, puts the Holy Spirit in them, and causes them to live a holy life. So there's no ripping apart the moral renewal of salvation and the forgiveness of sins, the pardon of sin associated with salvation. So salvation is by grace and judgment is by works because there's no such thing as a person saved by grace who isn't also sanctified, who doesn't live a holy life. There is no such thing because you can't rip apart the forgiveness of sins and moral renewal. The God who forgives sin also renews the soul. It's all of God, and it's all of grace. By grace you're saved, through faith. That, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, that no one should boast because we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God afore prepared that we should walk in them. There's no contradiction between salvation by grace, not of works that no man should boast, and being God's new creation created in Christ for good works, which God afore ordained that we should walk in them. Because everyone that he justifies, he also sanctifies. And that's why there's no contradiction between Judgment by works and salvation by grace. So that's an awful long introduction, I know. It is. 
Long introduction. But don't you think it's important to tell people that when we get started? Because don't you think that could be just a little bit on the confusing side? Yeah, I think so. So that's the foundation. Now, because I'm only going to deal with the first of these things tonight, uh, this morning, I, I justified taking the time to say that. Now, when he, just, when he judges people by works, he highlights three features or characteristics of that ultimate justice. Ultimate justice, judgment by works, divides humanity. Ultimate justice, judgment by works, levels humanity. And ultimate justice, judgment by works, exposes humanity. The division is ethical or moral. The leveling is ethnic. And the exposure is evangelical. Notice, first of all, he describes the division. There are two kinds of people. And ultimate justice discriminates, segregates, divides humanity. How does it divide humanity? Verse 7, on the one hand, when he judges, gives back to everyone ultimate justice according to the works. On the one hand, there's a division. On the one hand, to those who by perseverance and good work seek glory, honor, and immortality, he gives them everlasting life. On the other hand, he distinguishes, he discriminates, he segregates to those who from selfishness are both disobeying the truth and persuaded by injustice, wrath, and anger. So the first thing that he does is he divides humanity ethically, morally, spiritually into two different kinds of people. The righteous and the wicked. Second thing, ultimate justice. When God judges by works, it not only divides or segregates humanity into two classes, Two states, the righteous and the wicked. It also levels humanity. How, do, it, it, how does it level humanity? The leveling is ethnic, starting in verse 9. Affliction, distress, on every soul of man that does evil, of a Jew first and also of a Greek... Ethnic connections and bloodlines don't make any difference. He levels people from every ethnic branch of the one and only human race, whether righteous or wicked. So the Judgment Day not only divides or segregates humanity ethically or morally, it also levels humanity ethnically. Jew and Greek, both judge. And he goes on to explain that leveling of mankind in verses 9 to 15. And the final thing that he says about the impact of Judgment Day, 
is that it exposes people. Verse 16, on a day when God judges men's secrets. He judges us not for what we pretend to be, not for what we appear to be, not for what we say we are, but he judges us on that day for what we really are. What we really are in secret before God. When he judges men's secrets according to my gospel. That's why I say the exposure is evangelical because it's according to the gospel. So you have ethical segregation, ethnic leveling, evangelical exposure. That's what God does when he meets out ultimate justice on the day of judgment. Now this morning, my intention, having said that, to put it all in perspective. You follow where we're going with this and why we're going there? So then what I want to talk about this morning is I want to just address the first of those. The first one of those is how Judgment Day divides humanity into two kinds of people, the ethical division, the moral division of mankind into two kinds of people, the righteous and the wicked. There is, when God meets out ultimate justice, he's going to distinguish. Jesus described it. He said he takes the sheep and the goats. And to the sheep, he says, come you blessed. And to the goats, the wicked, he says, depart you cursed. The same type of division of mankind that Je- on the day of judgment that Jesus described in Matthew 25. And so many different passages distinguish righteous people and wicked people. The righteous are those who are in a state of grace. The wicked are those who are in a state of sin. The wicked are those who live and die in a state of sin. Those are the ones that Jesus calls the goats. Every person in this room right now is either in a state of grace or in a state of sin. There's none of you that was in a state that's in a state of innocence that Adam and Eve were in before the fall. And there's none of you that are in a state of glory. If you think you're in a state of glory, that is, you think you're living without sin, you got a problem. Nobody is glorified. Nobody's in a state of glory. So you got two options. Everybody on earth is either in a state of sin or a state of grace. And on the day of judgment, when he meets out ultimate justice, he's going to deal with us according to how we lived on earth by our works that we did here. Whether we lived here and behaved here in a state of grace, or whether we lived here and behaved here in a state of sin. That make sense to you? State of sin, state of grace. That's it. Sheep and goats, nothing else. So, before I go any further, is it not obvious that there's an application of this? Do you, do you think, as you hear these words that Paul spoke, do you think that it has any application or relevance to you? 
Well, I think it has relevance to me. Say, so, well, what, what relevance do you think it has to you? Well, just this. I think that the number one priority of my life ought to be to know what state I'm in and to make sure that I'm in a state of grace and not in a state of sin. Why is that? Well, why do you think? Because I believe that what Paul wrote here is the truth. I think he told the truth. I think the day is coming when Jesus is going to return and everybody in this room is going to stand before him on the day of judgment. And then it will be very clear on that day we're either going to be with the sheep to whom he says, come you blessed, or we're going to be with the goats to whom he says, depart you cursed. Those are the only two options. Nobody, No other option. No third option. And the obvious evident application of this is that since every one of us is going to be there on that day and every one of us is going to be in one of those, one of those groups, that what we need to do right now is to make sure we know that we are in a state of grace and not in a state of sin. I entreat you to do that. Make it a top, the top priority, whatever your priorities are, make that to be the top priority of your life. To know that you're in a state of grace and not sin. And then the next obvious thing is to live like it. So that brings me, first of all then, two things now to open up. The final judgment of the righteous and the final judgment of the wicked. Ultimate justice for the righteous, those in a state of grace. Ultimate justice for the wicked, those in a state of sin. And look what he says about the works of the righteous and about the reward or recompense of the righteous. What the righteous do on earth as they live in the state of grace, and what they receive from God on the day of judgment. First of all, he says that they persevere. They live a righteous, godly, holy life as long as they live. They never go back into what they used to be before God saved them. And it says that they are seeking. And what are the righteous seeking? They're seeking a better world. They are seeking what? What are they seeking for? As they persevere, they're seeking glory. They're seeking honor. They're seeking Immortality. If they were to write down, like some people tell us to do, write down your life goals. What do you want in life? I want glory, honor, immortality in the world to come. That's my life goal and ultimate ambition of my life. Write that down. What do you want in life? 
That's what they're seeking. That's their ultimate goal. That's what they're aiming at. That's their purpose. That's their plan in life. It's what they want. Glory, immortality, and honor in the world to come. The righteous are living this life in hope and in expectation of the world to come. And they're also doing what is good. They're living a holy life. They're doing what is good in terms of moral conformity to God's revealed will and his law and in terms of practical love to those that are in need. As Jesus points out very clearly in his description of Judgment Day in Matthew chapter 25. They're working what is good, what is beneficial and good. They are, quote, the doers of the law. They're walking in gospel obedience to God's revealed will because he wrote his law on their hearts and he put the Holy Spirit in them and enables them to walk in evangelical obedience to the law of God. They feed the hungry. They show hospitality to the needy. They visit the sick. They care for people in need. It's not that that's all they do, but that is an essential part of their life on earth. Paul describes their lifestyle as a lifestyle of doing good. And what's the recompense? He says, to those that do this, God gives, quote, everlasting or eternal life. Face-to-face fellowship with God and Christ, the Father and Son, that lasts forever. We already know him, for this is life eternal, that they might know you, the only true God, and him who you sent, Jesus Christ. We already know him, but then we shall see him as he is and will be like him. He will give to them glory, honor, and peace. He will glorify the righteous. Then will the righteous, as we heard, shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. The fight with the devil will be over. There will be victory over the devil, victory over the world, victory over sin, victory over death. There will be rest. There will be peace. Suffering will be done. Tears will be done. Sin will be done. Death will be done. The battle will be over and the war will be won. There will be peace. There will be honor and glory. He that overcomes, Jesus said, I will give to sit down with me in my throne as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. We will reign with him. Come, you blessed. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. And the righteous will go away to everlasting life in a new heavens and earth wherein dwells righteousness with God, with Christ, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with us forever and ever. Unending joy, unending life, 
unending, sinless perfection forever and ever and ever. Do you believe in billions of years? Yes, I do. Billions of years in the past? No. Billions of years in the future. These will go away to everlasting life. That's the recompense of the righteous. You have the lifestyle of the righteous, the works of the righteous, and the recompense of the righteous. But then, the other thing that's in the text is the ultimate justice. The final judgment of the wicked. You have the works of the wicked, and you have the recompense of the wicked. To those that through selfish ambition, to those who from selfishness are both disobeying the truth and being persuaded by injustice. The idea of selfish ambition. What is this? Well, I can summarize it this way. It's all about me. It's all about I. It's all about myself. My life is all about me. It's about what I want. What do I want? Well, that's what my life is all about. My ambition is to do and be what I want to do and to be what I want to be and to get what I want to have. And what do people want? Well, some people want to be famous. Some people want to be rich. Some people want to have power, control. Some people want to have pleasure. Pleasure, money, power, fame. It's what people want. Write down what you want. Your goals. Set up your goals. Just set down my goals. What do you want? I want it. I want to be famous. I want to have power. I want to be rich. I want to have pleasure and enjoy myself every day. What do you want? That's the lifestyle of the wicked. That's what they want. That's what they live for. That's their ambition. It's, it grows out of complete and total selfishness. Self-centeredness. Now, Jesus said, you know, don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear. Your father knows that you need these things. Paul said, let him that stole steal no more, but let him labor working with his hands that he might have to give. So this is not saying that you shouldn't care about a vocation or that you shouldn't ever think about what, what a wardrobe or where you're going to live. No, that, that's not the point. The point is that the ultimate ambition of the righteous is not selfish. It's God-centered and it's focused on the world to come. And the ultimate ambition of the wicked is selfish. And it's focused on having these things that they want. They want riches. They want power. They want fame. They want pleasure. That's what they want. And if that's all you want in life, that's the evidence of the fact that you're not living a righteous life, but you're living a wicked life. A selfish life that doesn't ever think of anything or anybody but yourself. And furthermore, 
It says that what they do is evil. They, they, they disobey God. They, they are willing to do whatever they have to do to get what they want. So if they have to break God's commandments in order to have pleasure, then they break God's commandments to have pleasure. If they have to break God's commandments to get rich, then they break God's commandments to get rich. If they have to lie in order to be popular or have power, then they lie in order to be popular and have power. And it goes on and on and on. They do whatever they have to do to get what they want. That's the way they live. That's what he's describing, the lifestyle of the wicked. They don't obey the truth. They do what they want to do to get what they want to have. The primary driving influence of their life is not integrity, but sin. Pragmatism, not principle. If it works to get me what I want, then I'm going to do it. Doesn't matter what it is. If it works, do it. They're not doing good. They're too busy to do good. They're too busy making money. They're too busy becoming powerful. Too busy having fun. Too busy becoming famous. They don't have time to be visiting the sick, feeding the hungry, helping the needy. They don't have time. I don't have time for that. Why don't you have time for that? Well, I'm too busy making money. I'm too busy having fun. I'm too busy doing what I want to do and getting what I want to have. And I don't have time. Now, what did Jesus say to those people on the day of judgment? He said, I was sick and you didn't visit me. Why didn't they visit anybody? Why, why didn't they visit the sick? Why didn't they care about the hungry? Why didn't they care about the needy? They were too busy. What were they doing? Well, I was busy making money, and I was busy having fun, and I was, I was busy becoming popular, and I was busy having power and gaining control for myself. I didn't have time for that stuff. And furthermore, Jesus, when did I ever see you hungry and didn't take care of you? And he says to them, and as much as you didn't do it, to the least of these, my brothers, you didn't do it to me. You got time to care about nobody or nothing but yourself and what you want in life. Jesus said that's enough to show plenty of evidence on the day of judgment that you live in a wicked lifestyle and the recompense of the wicked is coming to you. They're going to say, well, what do we do? You didn't do anything. Yeah, that's right. We didn't do anything. Exactly. You didn't do anything. But you should have done something. Well, what should we have done? You should have cared about people. Should have visited sick people. Should have fed hungry people. You didn't care. You didn't do it. You didn't do anything. That's what Jesus is saying to these people. These are the wicked. Not the righteous, the wicked. Not the righteous, the wicked. They didn't care about anybody but themselves. That's their lifestyle. It's a lifestyle of the wicked. And it's going to be dealt with on the day of judgment. And what's the recompense that's coming to the wicked on that day? Get away from me, you cursed. 
into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. He says in verse 8, Paul says, wrath and indignation, God's punishment and vengeance, tribulation and anguish. The wicked on that day will be sent away to suffer in body and in soul in the lake of fire. All their hopes will fail. They won't be annihilated. They'll be punished forever with everlasting ruin in the lake of fire. They're coming forth to be raised from the dead to a a resurrection of condemnation. Affliction, torment, anguish, weeping, wailing, gnashing of teeth. Look, Look, the things that the Bible says about the recompense of the wicked are so horrible so awful in their extent, their degree and nature, that for us, it's really unfathomable. It's beyond conception for me to think of, even think about what it would be like for people, body and soul, to be thrown into the lake of fire and to suffer forever. Not just for a while, but forever. It's unfathomable. It's so awful. It's so horrible. You say, well, what are you doing scaring people with stuff like that? Well, folks, let me tell you. If I made that stuff up, shame on me. I didn't make it up. I can't even begin to understand it, but I can tell you this much. I want to make my priority in life that I don't ever find out the hard way what that stuff really means and what it's like. And I'm telling you this right now. I don't want any of you, not a single person that's listening to me, I don't want any of you to find out the hard way what it means either. I really don't. I'm not telling you that because I've got some carnal desire to scare you. I'm telling you that because the Bible says it says that openly, straight. Jesus said it. Paul said it. It's right there in the text. We even read it in the scripture reading this morning. Jesus said it just in the very scripture reading we read in the providence of God this morning. So look, I entreat you. I plead with you. Please, listen to me. These things that the Bible describes, these things are true. This is really going to happen. It's really going to happen to people. And I, I, I don't want it to happen to you. And I don't want it to happen to me. And the only way to escape the wrath of God, and there is a way to escape, thanks be to God. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. For whoever, whosoever, will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I'll never ever cast him out. So I know that Jesus is willing to rescue you. I know he's willing to save you. It's not possible that you did anything too bad that he won't save you. That's not possible. He will save you. He will rescue you. He saved me. And I deserve to go to hell as much, if not more, than anyone in this room. He had mercy on me, and he saved me, and he will save you too. I entreat you. I plead with you. Call upon the name of the Lord. And don't wait. 
This is the day to get right with God. He said, well, what do I do? Well, this is what you do. You talk to Jesus. You say, well, how can I talk to Jesus? He's dead. That's the whole point. He's not dead. He was dead. He's alive. He actually is alive. And he can hear you, and he will respond to you. And he will save you. Talk to him. I can't save you. If I could save you, I would. I can't. I can only point you to the one who can and who will. And I point you to him. And I treat you to go to him and talk to him. And talk to him. Well, what do I say? Just tell him. You don't want to go to hell. Tell him. You deserve to go it. And you know it. And you don't want to go. And you heard that he saves sinners. And would he please save you? Put it in your own words. Talk to him. Pour out your heart to him. He will rescue you. He will save you. He will deliver you. You don't have to go to hell. Don't have to find out the hard way what this stuff means. Don't want you to. This is the whole point. Paul didn't say this stuff to be mean and, 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 and destroy people. He said this stuff to show them why they need Jesus. That was the whole point of this. The reason that he talked about the wrath of God being here already on his pagan society and the wrath of God that's still to come, the reason he talked about it was because he wanted to show people why they needed Christ and he wanted them to get saved. That was the whole point of this. So if you rip it out of that context, you totally distort it. This is not about manipulating people. This is about seeing people get saved and doing what's in their best interest for all eternity. It's about preventing people from ever experiencing this horrible, awful wrath of God. It's about talking about Jesus' great love that he was willing to suffer and endure that wrath so that those who believe in him, who deserve it, don't ever have to suffer. That's what we were remembering at the table. That's what he did. He endured the wrath that we deserve who believe in him so that we don't ever have to have an experience. There's love. Not that we love God, but he sent his son. And if, if God loved us so much that he sent his son to do that, is he going to withhold anything that we need? He won't. Well, I entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I entreat you to get right with God. I plead with you to make sure that you're one of those people that's numbered with the righteous on that day and not with the wicked. And on that great day when he segregates humanity into two classes, the righteous and the wicked, that you're with the righteous and not with the wicked. May God be pleased to bless his holy word. Let's pray.